This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The Only Way is Through, a new podcast in partnership with iHeartRadio and Under Armour. Players, coaches, and athletes will share intimate and personal stories of performing at the highest level. Here is Canadian heptathlete Georgia Ellenwood. The reason I won is because on that day I was confident. I need to continue that mentality to understand that I can be an Olympic athlete. I can compete with the best in the world and just perform. Listen to The Only Way is Through, available now on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Carnivore Club. You can escape the curse of being that person who gives mediocre Christmas presents. Give the gift that everyone will be talking about, the gift of unforgettable cured meats. Carnivore Club is the world's first subscription service dedicated to delivering premium cured meats right to your door. They are delicious. Carnivore Club has both one-time gift orders and long-term subscriptions available. If you go to carnivoreclub.co now and place your order using promo code HISTORY, you will get 50 15% off. Hey, I'm Chuck. And I'm Josh. And we're the host of Stuff You Should Know, the podcast. That's right. And if you're into understanding cool and unusual and seemingly ordinary and even boring things that are made interesting, you should check us out. Please and thank you. We're on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, anywhere you get podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy B. Wilson. So in our last episode, we talked about the fear and unrest that gripped the United States uh, at the conclusion of World War One. Armistice certainly did not put an end to the stresses of financial problems and racial divide and labor strikes that were happening throughout the country. And there was a growing fear that a revolution incited by foreign anarchists or communists was going to change America forever. And after rising through the political ranks to become attorney general, and after a series of coordinated bomb attacks on prominent U.S. citizens, A. Mitchell Palmer made it his mission to root out what he believed to be a revolutionary threat to national security. So we highly recommend you listen to part one of this two-part episode before this one so that you have a fuller context for the events that we're about to talk about. Because while there were some legitimate concerning events that happened, this quickly spread and became about one man's hunt to basically get rid of as many immigrants as he could. Starting on November 7th, 1919, two years after Russia's Bolshevik Revolution, locations in 12 different cities and towns were raided by Palmer's assembled forces in a coordinated effort. One of the raided locations was the Russian People's House at 133 East 15th Street in New York. And this building housed the Office of the Federated Unions of Russian Workers, as well as a cafeteria and classrooms. 
When the agents from the Department of Justice arrived, they had warrants for a few suspects, but they launched a full-scale attack on the entire building and everyone in it. Furniture and property were destroyed, and students from classrooms were violently herded into stairwells, and in many cases shoved so that they fell down the stairs. Several hundred people in total were beaten with, quote, blackjacks and stair rails. Those same several hundred people were taken to a nearby Department of Justice office and questioned. Only an estimated one-fifth of those initially taken into custody were held. The rest were released, but many of them were seriously injured. The treatment of the group at the hands of the Department of Justice led to a protest at Madison Square Garden the following night, led by attorney and activist Dudley Field Malone. And a letter was written to the Attorney General by the New York Bar Association that demanded to know if the raid had indeed been under the direction of the Department of Justice and also requested an investigation into the events. That letter was never acknowledged by Palmer's office. The same night of that protest on November 8th, a group of men had gathered to discuss purchasing a vehicle so that everyone in the community to learn how to drive. That meeting in Bridgeport, Connecticut, was raided and 63 arrests were made. 16 people were released over the following two days. But after three days of being held in cramped quarters at the local police station with little to no food, the remaining 47 were moved to the Hartford jail under the direction of the Department of Justice. And while they were in the Hartford jail... There were additional arrests being made, and those individuals were added to the numbers. And people who applied for visitation to the arrested men were also often jailed until the Hartford group numbered 97. They were questioned, they were threatened with suffocation and hanging, and they were beaten. The Department of Labor and the Department of Justice worked in conjunction to file arrest warrants after the fact for all of the men that were held there. They were all kept alone in their cells, with agents of the Department of Justice as their only visitors. They were allowed no reading materials. Many of the men had no idea what they were even being held for, and when they questioned that their jailers got no information. Most had no idea if there was bail set for them, and if there was, how much it was. They were given two to five minutes per day at a sink outside of their cells to wash their face and hands. And they were allowed five minutes of tub time per month to wash their bodies. Food was often insufficient and also foul. And family and friends were not allowed any contact with these men in the prison. Punishment in the Hartford Jail took place in four identical rooms. Each of them were 51 inches by 106 inches. That's about 1.3 meters by 2.7 meters uh, in their, their floor size. And these rooms were situated over a boiler room, and consequently they would become unbearably hot. Men suspected of holding anarchist or communist ideologies were put into such rooms for 36 to 60 hours at a time, with one glass of water and one piece of bread given to them every 12 hours. Most were unconscious when their time in a punishment room had ended. According to a later investigation, only one person in the five months that they were using these rooms was actually able to walk back to his regular cell without help. The situation in Hartford lasted, as we just mentioned, for five months until April 1920. At that point, a lawyer finally managed to get into the jail, and the conditions were immediately deemed unacceptable, which we will talk about more in a moment. 
In December, a number of the detainees were were deported to Russia by ship, which was nicknamed the Red Ark and Soviet Ark in press reports. Although this really was done rather quietly and quickly, uh, it's unclear if there was sufficient paperwork for all of the people put on that boat. Yeah, often with a uh, an event as old as this one is, like it is old enough that typically I can find a lot of photos that might be in the public domain, and it's it's recent enough that there are a lot of photo photos. It's not so old that there are no pictures. Not a lot of pictures of this. No, the response to these initial raids had been largely positive. Emboldened by the November successes, A. Mitchell Palmer made even bigger plans. On January 2nd, 1920, a second mass raid effort was launched, and approximately 3,000 people were arrested over the course of several days in 30 different cities and towns. On the 2nd, a chief agent to the Department of Justice in Detroit named Arthur L. Barkey received an order from Palmer to raid the suspected headquarters of the Communist Party. 800 men were captured as they attended classes and dances in the building, and then they were held for three to six days in a corridor in the city's federal building in the dark. The captive men had no beds. They slept on the floor. All 800 of them had to wait in lines for access to the one drinking fountain and one toilet available. No food was given to them until family members started showing up with provisions about 20 hours into their captivity. They were not allowed to speak to family or legal counsel, and law enforcement eventually started moving them in groups to precinct police stations with actual holding cells. Between 130 and 140 of these men were moved to the police bullpen, which was intended for keeping people arrested for petty crimes for a few hours at a time. It was a cellar room with one window, 24 by 30 feet, that's 7.3 by 9.1 meters in length and width. And those men, again, 130 to 140 men, were held in that cramped space for a week with no beds, relying primarily on food that was brought in by relatives to survive. Tallies of the men estimated that approximately 350 of them were American citizens or aliens who could prove that they were in no way connected to any sort of radicalism. Of the 800 men initially seized, there were eventually warrants issued for 440 of them 10 days after they had actually been arrested. 140 of them got out on bond and the other 300 were moved to an army fort for longer term holding and they remained there for several months. We're actually going to discuss something you might not expect in just a moment, which is paperwork. But before we do, let's pause for just a moment, take a break from the Palmer Raids because it is a little bit heavy, and talk about one of our sponsors that keeps the lights on in the studio so we can talk about these heavy topics. So the holidays are almost here. That causes a great deal of stress every time I say it. Uh, but I do want to say this and give a shout out to the people that work at my post office. I love them. But what I don't love is dealing with all the angry people who are also there to mail parcels. I don't want to be around all of those crabby people when I'm already struggling with my own like uh, fight against crabbiness. So instead, Stamps.com to the rescue. So with Stamps.com, you can avoid all of that hassle of going to the post office. You don't have to find parking. You don't have to walk. You don't have to carry things. Just do everything you would do at the post office, but do it right there at your own desk. You can buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer. 
You can print postage for any letter or package the instant that you need it, and then you hand that off to your mail carrier, making it easy and convenient and not dealing with stressy, crabby people. Right now, you can sign up for Stamps.com and use our promo code, which is STUFF, to get a special offer, which includes a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer. That's going to get you some postage as well as a digital scale to calculate everything perfectly. So don't wait. Go to Stamps.com, and before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in STUFF. That's Stamps.com, and enter STUFF. So if you're wondering how in the world they got the manpower to issue all these warrants for all these arrests, the answer is they didn't. Most of the people were were rounded up without warrants and with no formal paperwork to document the arrests. About 5,000 people were taken into custody, most of these people being completely innocent. And when you consider that these conditions that we talked about in in these two instances, there were many more than those two instances that we just talked about. They were being kept in similar conditions, completely innocent for weeks and sometimes months at a time. But the other thing that was interesting was that not all of the people who were accused of anti-American sentiment during this time were captured in raids. Some had their lives ruined in more subtle but no less damning ways. And one of these was an art teacher named Julia Pratt. And she had been suspended from her teaching job abruptly. And when the school board held a hearing to review her case, a man showed up named Herman Bernard. And he testified that he had been an undercover agent of the Department of Justice and that in his undercover role, he became a secretary of the Buffalo Communist Party And he then said that he knew and had records of Miss Pratt as a member of that party and the dates on which she paid her dues. But that art teacher told a very different story in her testimony. She said on July 18th, 1919, Miss Harris invited me into her home to meet some, quote, interesting intellectual friends of hers, as she put it. I went out to Kenmore. Herman Bernard came in with two women friends of his. He constantly injected overdrawn statements against the government into the conversation and outlined in glowing terms the work the Communist Party would perform in emancipating the oppressed and exploited. Bernard later came to my house with others of the same group, ate at my table, and I played the harp for him. It is only on the testimony of this agent provocateur that the board has dismissed me. And again, that's one example, but there were others where uh, people had basically sort of like baited a situation where they would go in and talk about communism and people would sort of politely nod and then they would be like, that's a communist. Like, uh, there were some very squirrely things going on. Pretty sure that's called entrapment. It is indeed. Uh, still other people from Hoover's list were apprehended at Palmer's orders, often beaten and sometimes taken from their homes. So where they weren't raiding like big group gatherings, but they were just going to individual people's homes and taking them out, often without warrant and with no cause that they stated. Uh, In at least some cases, fake testimonies were typed up and signed with forged signatures. There's a report we're going to talk about in a moment that has one of these instances where it is clearly a forged signature. There were many, many instances of poor treatment at the hands of Palmer's agents. So as I've said a couple times now, what we have selected here to detail is just a sampling While there had been some unease about the November raids by the public, the January raids caused real concern, not fear of communists or anarchists, but fear that the attorney general had far overstepped his bounds. 
In part in response to this rash of raids that were happening without cause, on January 19, 1920, the American Civil Liberties Union was formed. And this was an effort on the part of a number of concerned citizens, many of which had already been working in the National Civil Civil Liberties Bureau, to shift the focus away from that group's litigation-only approach to one that was more action-oriented and focused on education as well as fighting legal battles. In the spring of 1920, the tide continued to turn against Palmer. Assistant Secretary of Labor Lewis F. Post saw the Palmer raids as one man's ambition spinning rapidly out of control, with nothing limiting the actions that were being taken. When Post found out about the men being held at Hartford Prison in April of that year, he had them all transferred immediately to the immigration station at Deer Island, Boston, where their conditions were better and their cases could be evaluated and properly documented. Post went on to cancel more than 1,500 deportations, which was a slap in the face to Palmer, and an act that some people that were really behind Palmer's moves thought were tre- was treasonous. There was actually an attempt to impeach Lewis Post, but the assistant secretary gave extremely persuasive and powerful testimony during his appearance before Congress, which caused the various politicians that had been calling for his impeachment to back off. And some of them actually started to see that civil liberties had been outright abused during these raids. One of the truly heartbreaking effects of the Palmer raids were the very real, immediate, and long-lasting effects that they had on the lives of innocent people who were taken into custody. Often they struggled to find work after their confinement because even if they were released without charges, there were still there was still a shadow of Bolshevism on them, and employers were unwilling to hire them. And Palmer continued to warn the public that terrorist attacks were coming. He was making predictions about, like, on this day, this will happen. It's my intelligence tells me this. But none of those predictions were materializing, and his credibility really suffered for it. On May 28, 1920, 12 lawyers issued, issued a report on the Palmer raids. They were R.G. Brown of Memphis, Tennessee, Zechariah Chaffee, Jr. of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Felix Frankfurter of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Ernst Freund of Chicago, Illinois, Swinburne Hale of New York City, Francis Fisher Kane of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Alfred S. Niles of Baltimore, Maryland, Roscoe Pound of Cambridge, Massachusetts, Jackson H. Ralston of Washington, D.C., David Wallerstein of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, Frank P. Walsh of New York City, and Terrell Williams of St. Louis, Missouri. And this report detailed all of these instances of the Palmer raids, how literally thousands of alleged radicals had been arrested with no warrants, held in substandard conditions, and had been denied contact with family members and legal counsel. And this document was jointly published by the ACLU and the National Popular Government League. This report was, I mean, perhaps surprisingly, based on the the political climate that we've been talking about in these two episodes, well-received. It appeared that in the face of the brutal and illegal behavior of the Department of Justice under the guidance of, Ge- of Attorney General A. Mitchell Palmer, public attitudes were shifting away from this fervent, blinding fear of the other. And we're going to go into details about the contents of that report. But before we do, uh, this is probably a good place to pause and have a word from one of our sponsors. Our sponsor today is Blue Apron, and Holly and I are both big fans. Blue Apron delivers fresh, high-quality ingredients that make a real difference to the deliciousness and freshness of the food that you're serving at home. 
Uh, for less than $10 per person per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients that let you make delicious home-cooked meals. One of the things that's really important to me is they try to source from farms where the meat is humanely raised for the meat-based dishes. Or if you are not into eating meat, they have a vegetarian selection that is delicious. Uh, even though my husband and I both do eat meat, we often switch totally to the vegetarian menu because the vegetarian options are often just so good. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you can make incredible food. And also, as you're doing it, you are learning awesome cooking techniques that you can apply to your life when you are not cooking your Blue Apron meals. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash history. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That is blueapron.com slash history. Blue Apron, it's a better way to cook. So this opening of the report that we talked about uh, before we went to break is a letter to the people of the United States. And it is lengthy, but I want to read a significant portion of this introductory letter here. It reads, to the American people. For more than six months, we, the undersigned lawyers whose sworn duty it is to uphold the Constitution and laws of the United States, have seen with growing apprehension the continued violation of that Constitution and breaking of those laws by the Department of Justice of the United States government. Under the guise of a campaign for the suppression of radical activities, the Office of the Attorney General, acting by its local agents throughout the country and giving express instructions from Washington, has committed continued illegal acts. Quote, wholesale arrests of both aliens and citizens have been made without warrant or any process of law. Men and women have been jailed and held incommunicado without access of friends or counsel. Homes have been entered without search warrant and property seized and removed. Other property has been wantonly destroyed. Working men and working women suspected of radical views have been shamefully abused and maltreated. Agents of the Department of Justice have been introduced into radical organizations for the purpose of informing upon their members or inciting them to activities. These agents have even been instructed from Washington to arrange meetings upon certain dates for the express object of facilitating wholesale raids and arrests. In support of these illegal acts and to create sentiment in its favor, the Department of Justice has also constituted itself a propaganda bureau and has sent to newspapers and magazines of this country quantities of material designed to excite public opinion against radicals, all at the expense of the government and outside the scope of the attorney general's duties. We make no argument in favor of any radical doctrine as such, whether socialist, communist, or anarchist. No one of us belongs to any of those schools of thought. Nor do we now raise any question as, the, as to the constitutional protection of free speech and a free press. We are concerned solely with bringing to the attention of the American people the utterly illegal acts which have been committed by those charged with the highest duty of enforcing the laws. Acts which have caused widespread suffering and unrest have struck at the foundation of American free institutions and have brought the name of our country into disrepute. The report grouped the various acts of Palmer's efforts into six categories. Cruel and unusual punishments arrests without warrant, unreasonable searches and seizures, provocative agents, basically entrapment operatives, 
compelling persons to witness against themselves, and propaganda by the Department of Justice. And by the numbers, the report offers a pretty damning assessment of the effectiveness of Palmer's methods. As of November 14, 1919, the Attorney General had assembled a list of 60,000 people by name that were suspected of radicalism of one kind or another. As of January 1st, 1920, 263 of these 60,000 people had been deported. From January 1st to the report's release in late May, there had been 18 more people deported, with another 529 ordered to deport by Palmer. Another 1,547 warrants for deportation were canceled during that time by post. Of those 60,000 suspects, the Attorney General had only deported 810. And as the report points out, that left more than 51,000 people to be dealt with by Palmer's own records. So in inflating the numbers of potential dangers, he basically stacked the deck against, against his own forces because they wound up looking pretty un- ineffective. And in concluding that introduction to the report, the lawyers who worked on it wrote, quote, It is a fallacy to suppose that, any more than in the past, any servant of the people can safely arrogate to himself unlimited authority. To proceed upon such a supposition is to deny the fundamental American theory of the consent of the governed. Here is no question of a vague threatened menace, but a present assault upon the most sacred principles of our constitutional liberty. One of the testimonies included in this report is from an, an immigrant named Alexander Bukowetsky, who had come to the United States from Russia and had been captured in the November raids. One section of his statement reads, quote, When I came to America, I came with the thought that I was coming to a free country, a place of freedom and happiness, and I was anxious to come, to get away from the czaristic form of government. As much as I was anxious to come here to America, I am a hundred times more anxious to run away from Americanism and return to Soviet Russia, where I will at least be able to live. Bukowetsky's testimony also mentions the fact that while he and men like him were confined for months on end, their families really suffered. Their wives and children often went hungry. Uh, They had to depend on the kindness of other people in their communities just to survive. Another statement included in the report is from Bukowetsky's 12-year-old daughter, Violet, who witnessed her mother being beaten by prison officials when the family attempted to visit her father. Her father jumped in front of his wife to shield her and was also beaten badly for doing so. Shots were fired by one of the guards hitting another imprisoned man in the knee. Mrs. Bukowetsky was deeply shaken by this incident and confined to her bed for an extended period of time, diagnosed by her doctor as having a nervous breakdown. In August of 1920, the ACLU published an informational pamphlet about the Red Scare titled Seeing Red, Civil Liberty and the Law in the Period Following the War. And it really outlined for people the conditions of fear and governmental overstepping that led to the climax of the Red Scare, the Palmer Raids. And in the pamphlet's conclusion, it reads... Civil liberty is more important today than it was in the stagnant period when we had it because no one troubled to abridge it. The world is rising upon one of the periodic waves which carry it onward towards civilized adjustment for human welfare. Despite all of the bad press around the raids, Palmer still ran for the Democratic Party's presidential nomination of 1920 as he had planned, and he lost. In March 1921, he returned once again to private practice as a lawyer. 
Palmer, for his part, was never remorseful about what had taken place in any public statement, at least, that he made. In 1921, he testified to the Investigative Senate Committee on the raids, and he defended the entire enterprise, saying, quote, I apologize for nothing the Department of Justice has done. I glory in it. I point with pride and enthusiasm to the results of that work. And if agents of the Department of Labor were a little rough and unkind with these alien agitators, I think it might well be overlooked in the general good to the country. In September 1921, FBI Director William J. Flynn abruptly resigned, claiming a need to attend to a private business matter. It's a very troubling time in America's history that we don't talk about very much. Mm -mm. I had not heard much about it at all before uh, you brought up wanting to do it as an episode. Yeah. uh, I mean, you see how fear can really, like, embolden situations like that. And it is troubling. Uh, I want to say a lot more, but it will not be cool. So... So once again, if you listened to the last episode, you uh, heard our listener mail was not really listener mail. We're doing the same thing again this time uh, because the thing that we're talking about happens next week. And I want to make sure people have this information. Uh, So we mentioned before when we talked about this that many, many people have asked us to cover the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II as an episode. And also other people, but it's especially... Especially Japanese Americans. Yes, 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 yes. Um, and in part, uh, the, you know, continued rise of awareness of that incident is because George Takei has been so outspoken about his experience as a child living in, in one of those internment camps. And he wrote, uh, along with some collaborators, a play called Allegiance, uh, which was a musical that ran on Broadway in the 2015-2016 season. To great critical acclaim. Uh, and now for those of us that missed it or, uh, you know, just didn't, didn't manage to know it happened until later, there's an opportunity to see it in your local cinema. So it was filmed while it was running on Broadway and it's being distributed as a fathom event for one night and one night only on December 13th, which is a Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. This is really his passion project and he is inviting elected officials to go to local screenings and really see what this piece of history was like. And you can also go to, to get tickets to it, you just need to go to uh, fathomevents.com and uh, also participating theaters. You can buy them directly at their, at your local box office, but you will have to make sure that they are running this show. Uh, again, it is George Takei's Allegiance, the Broadway musical on the big screen is the official name of the event. So I encourage you go learn about this piece of history from the perspective of someone that lived through it. As I said before, we don't get a lot of chances to see history kind of told in this way. So it's a unique opportunity that uh, everybody should should do if they can. If you would like to write to us about what you thought of seeing Allegiance or uh, the Palmer Raids or anything else, you can do so at HistoryPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. Uh, you can also find us across the spectrum of social media as at Missed in History. We are on Twitter as at Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, on Instagram as at Missed in History, MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. Pinterest.com slash Mystic History. You get the idea. We're everywhere. Uh, if you would like to go to our parent site, you can search 
in the search bar for almost anything that you are interested in, and probably we have some cool content around it. That is HowStuffWorks.com. You can also visit us at MissedInHistory.com for this episode, all of our previous episodes going all the way back to the years uh, when it was very, very short and we were not the hosts. Uh, you can also find... Uh, show notes for any of the episodes that Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as occasional other blog posts or announcements. And now we actually have a little bit of video that is going on. That's a new sort of venture for Stuff You Missed in History class that we're hoping to do more of. Uh, so come and visit us at MissedInHistory.com and HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. How do you find a new way forward when suddenly you have to, ready or not? Maybe you're relocating or having your first baby or leaving a relationship. Just starting or just starting over. On the road to somewhere, we talk about all of it, getting really honest. And we definitely laugh our way through it. That's the beauty of this journey. I'm Lisa Oz. And I'm Jill Herzig. Join us as we navigate our own big life changes on our podcast, The Road to Somewhere. Listen to The Road to Somewhere on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.